If you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to the book of 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, but the book of 1 John. So turn to Revelation and then flip a few books back and you will come to the book of 1 John. And this morning we're beginning a a new series that uh, will take us through the epistle of 1 John. And uh, contrary to popular belief, an epistle is not the wife of an apostle. An epistle is actually a letter um, written. So we are uh, calling this series Unshakable. And um, we're doing so because this letter, the letter of 1 John, is all about us having an unshakable assurance of our faith. That we know that we know that we know. And the letter of 1 John was written by the Apostle John, one of the disciples closest to Jesus. Arguably one who knew Jesus um, the best. Five times in the Gospel of John, uh, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So basically, John is writing and saying, I'm not trying to brag, but he loved me a little more. It's basically what John does in his gospel five times, the one that Jesus loved. And John left everything to follow Jesus. And in the years that followed, he witnessed firsthand the miraculous life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus preached, when Jesus healed, when Jesus cast out demons, when Jesus raised the dead, when Jesus even raised himself, John was there and John saw it. John was a witness to it all. And John lived to be around 100 years old. He was the most authoritative Christian leader on earth at the end of his life. Um, He was the only apostle, the only apostle to avoid martyrdom. He was the only one of the remaining 11 that was not killed for his faith. Yet, even though he avoided martyrdom, he did not avoid suffering. So he suffered for his faith. At one point, according to tradition, hear this, John was actually brought into the middle of the Roman Colosseum. He was put into a boiling vat of oil. And he was told, if you denounce Jesus as the Christ, if you deny Jesus, we'll let you, let you out. And they put him in And something happened. He didn't die. And he began to preach the gospel. So much so that they said people were beginning to turn to Christ. So they said, we got to get this guy out of here. So instead of killing him on the spot, they exiled him. So a 90-year-old man exiled him to the island of Patmos, which wasn't like Hawaii. So don't think of that. It was a rugged, barren island in the middle of the sea covered with rocks. It was a rock quarry where they would send prisoners to to work and to basically carry rocks to ships all day long. And that's where they sent John. And John wrote um, the letter, this letter of, of 1 John. He wrote it around or near and around Ephesus or Asia Minor or think um, modern-day Turkey is kind of where, where the, the picture is. And he wrote this letter towards the end of his life. And interestingly, or interestingly enough, most of the letters in the New Testament have an intended audience. So most of the letters written in The New Testament says this is why we're writing, this is who we're writing to, but not 1 John. John basically is writing to every believer, including you and including me, because every single one of us, every believer, needs an unshakable assurance of our faith in Christ. We need to know that we know. And so John, he wrote five books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote first, second, and third letters of John. Then he wrote the book of Revelation. And in every book that he writes, he begins, or not begins, he he gives the purpose for writing. And the Gospel of John, in John 20, he says, 
These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the gospel is written so that people would come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.19, he says that Jesus told him, Write therefore these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So the book of Revelation, John is writing so that we would know what is to come. And then in 1 John, he tells his readers in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John wrote the gospel so that people would come to eternal life. John wrote this letter so that those who have eternal life would know that they have eternal life and would walk in that assurance. It, it amazes me the number of professing Christians today who do not walk in assurance of their faith. They are shaken about every time something comes up, they're shaken um, in their face. So ultimately, this letter and what we're going to do in this series is about us knowing for certain that we have eternal life. There's nothing, there's no greater knowledge that we can have than to know for certain that we have eternal life. But we, in that knowledge, we don't use that just to, then to sit back and go, well, I'm good. No, we, because we have eternal life, then we are called to something, And that is what we're going to see in this series. In describing this message, um, Pastor Charles Swindoll writes, We all go through ups and downs in our Christian faith. So can anybody attest to that? So a, a few of us, um, whatever the struggle he writes, whether outside or inside, um, we often feel ourselves blown about by the winds of emotion or circumstances. Yet God calls us to lives of increasing consistency with the evidence of our inner transformation becoming more and more apparent as the months and years pass by. So let me just pause for a second. And what he's saying is this. The longer you, you are a Christian, the more you should act like it and grow. So it's not like the longer we're Christians, the more we just slip back into the way of the world. No, the longer we are saved, the more we grow grow into his likeness and then he says this how would you characterize your relationship with God consistent and fruitful or sporadic and parched so just think about it. I want that that question to kind of hover over this series what is your Christian life like is it consistent and is it fruitful is it growing or is it sporadic is it parched so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to turn to the unshakable word together this, in this book of assurance so that we might, by his grace, become unshakable witnesses for him and witnesses of the fact that we know that we know that we have eternal life. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read 1 John 1, just verses 1 through 4 this morning. We're going to walk through this book verse by verse and just see where God takes us. So verse one, it says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Father, we 
Thank you for this time. Lord, as the choir just sang, speak to us. God, speak to us, Lord, for your glory. Speak to us. Words of life for your glory. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can open your word together. Lord, just lead us in this time. Speak to every heart and every life in this room. And help us, Lord, not just to be satisfied with the fact that we've heard from you. Lord, help us to obey you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So think about this. John wrote this letter around 60 years after Jesus ascended back up into heaven. But even though he waited 60 years to write this, neither did um, his passion for Jesus um, nor his memory of Jesus, it didn't fade. He still had the same memory of Christ and he still had the same passion for Christ. And in this letter, John offers us an eyewitness account, according to verse 1, of what was from the beginning. So the phrase is John's way of saying or referring to the eternal Son of God who existed before the beginning of creation. And John could never forget the three years that he spent with Jesus, walking with him, talking with him, how Jesus presented himself, not just as the word of life, but Jesus presented himself as eternal life itself. And here's what I love. Although John is talking about a person here, he doesn't begin his epistle or this letter by saying he who is from the beginning. But look at verse one. It says that which is from the beginning, that which we have heard, not he who we have heard. It's it's kind of weird. It's almost like John is talking about something instead of talking about someone. Something can be attained, eternal life, the word of life, as you're speaking about, not a person in our minds. But then John keeps going. He says, we've seen with our eyes, we've physically touched with our hands. So if eternal life is just a concept, then how can we see it? If eternal life is just a concept, how can we physically touch it? How do we hear it? And then we get to the end of verse 2, and John says, we proclaim to you, eternal life. So it sounds again like a concept. And then he says this, that which was with the Father. And all of a sudden we see a clear reference, not just to a concept, not just to an idea, but now to a person. That's the point of these verses. Follow this. The concept of eternal life cannot be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. Or to put it this way, Jesus Christ is eternal life. If you have him, you have it. If you don't have him, you don't have it. So without Jesus, we do not and will never have eternal life. So what I want to do, I want us to unpack four truths today related to Jesus as the eternal life who has come for us. And that's the title of our message this morning. Eternal life has come. So the first truth is this. Eternal life has been manifested Eternal life has been manifested. John uses um, that word. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it. And he says, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So go back with me to the Garden of Eden. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden The Bible says in chapter 3 of Genesis, they hid themselves from from the very presence of God. After this initial sin, humanity was forced out of the garden. And the Old Testament then begins to paint a clear picture of a fence 
that was placed around God's name and around God's glory. In Exodus 33, God tells Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not be able to see me and live. So God tells Moses, If you see me fully, you die. And all of a sudden man goes, Well, we don't want to die, so therefore we must not want to see God. At Sinai, after receiving the Ten Commandments, the people asked Moses, they say, Moses, you now, you hear from God on our behalf because if he keeps talking to us, we're going to die. In fact, they say, this day we've seen God speak with man and man still live, but if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? So yet, this God, whom no one could look at and live, became flesh. And the Jews of Jesus' day, to them, this would have been unbelievable. That the God of all glory would save his people in such a humble way, mainly by becoming one of us. For them, it was beyond comprehension. Martin Luther described his reaction to the incarnation in this way. When I am told that God became man, I can follow the idea but I just do not understand what it means. For what man, if left to his natural promptings, if he were God, would humble himself to live in the feed box of a donkey or to hang upon a cross? What man, if he were God, would humble himself to do that? And not only did God become flesh, God chose eyewitnesses to this amazing salvation story. The book of 1 John opens with the exclamation of an eyewitness to an incredible event of the incarnation that God became man. And the author of this letter was able basically to do what no human had done. He stood in the presence of God and he lived. In the Gospel of John, John writes these words. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only God of the Father, full of grace and truth. John had heard Jesus. John had touched Jesus. John had seen his miracles. He'd seen and touched the resurrection or the resurrected body. So John is saying here, listen, we don't just believe this because Christianity is a superior way to live or we're not just um, saying that Christianity makes more sense than other religions, even though we would say it probably does. John is saying, no, we believe because we have seen Jesus die and rise from the dead. And that is why we believe we have come to know that he is God, our savior. That's the point here. So if God became flesh, perfectly uniting God with man in the person of Jesus Christ, then the impossible has become possible. Now, every single one of us in this room, we all have doubts and we all have uncertainties. And there are things about the Christian faith that do not make sense to all of us. The problem is some of us aren't willing to admit that. We act like we have it all together and we would never be able to admit that there's nothing we don't know. And basically what we're doing in that is we're saying we really don't worship God. We worship our concept of God um, because that God always agrees with us. So that's what, if you're in here this morning and you say, I have no questions about my faith, then chances are you're probably worshiping a God not of the Bible. You're probably worshiping a God you've created who agrees with you on everything. So just so you know, because the God of this Bible, the Bible says his ways are so much higher than our ways. Therefore, we'll never come to the bottom or the top of him. 
This is the beauty of who we serve. So we all have those doubts. We all have, I wasn't even planning on saying that, so that won't cost you any more today. But think, think about this. There's all things in the Christian faith that sound unbelievable to us until we encounter the resurrected Savior and we realize that all of our objections or doubts are not true. We have to be willing to doubt our doubts. We have to decide whether to let the evidence overrule our objections or whether we're going to turn away from the evidence because of our objections. Think of it like this. Um, Yale physicist, um, back a, 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 almost two decades ago, by the name of uh, Robert Adair, studied the science behind hitting a major league fastball. And he published his findings in a book called The Physics of Baseball. And let me unpack one conclusion that he made. Basically, he said this, a 90-mile-an-hour fastball travels the 60 feet 6 inches from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's glove in 400 milliseconds, so less than half of a second. Adair figured out that it takes the batter's brain 200 milliseconds to find the ball in the air, to get the image of the ball in his brain, and to decide whether or not to swing. So half the time the ball is in the air, the batter is simply deciding, what should I do? Well, if the batter decides he is going to swing, it takes the, um, the brain another 100 milliseconds to decide whether to swing high or low or inside or, or outside in order to hit the ball. So now you're down to 300 milliseconds before you've even swung the bat. And then get this, the swing itself takes 150 milliseconds. So 200 milliseconds locating the ball, 100 making a decision, 150 swinging the bat, which equals 450 milliseconds, but the ball gets from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's glove in 400 milliseconds. So Adair, basically his conclusion based on the law of physics is that it is impossible to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. So according to the laws of physics, it is an impossibility. But let me ask you this question. How many of you this morning would agree with his conclusion? Okay, so no one would agree with his conclusion. You wouldn't. And it's not because you would say, well, his calculations are wrong, because most of us aren't going to go into physics going, those are wrong calculations. We're going to say it's not true because we've actually seen someone not just hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. We've seen people hit 95-mile-an-hour fastballs and even 100-mile-an-hour fastballs. So we know it's not true because people hit fastballs every day. And here's the reality. I can't explain away the facts of the incarnation that Jesus became flesh, but I cannot deny what I've seen. And that is what John is saying. We might not be able to explain it away, but we cannot deny it. So John is saying this is not just a theory we have accepted because we can explain it all. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is because he rose from the dead. We have seen him. We have touched him. We have felt the wounds from his resurrected body. John is saying eternal life has been manifested in the Son of God. Jesus has always been with the Father, yet at Bethlehem, Jesus came to be with us. He's always been with the Father, yet at Bethlehem, he came to be with us. And this is a scandal. This is a stumbling block called the incarnation. And it might not sound like a stumbling block to you until we hear the words of John Piper. And these words are so very, very well written. He says this, many, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a mere spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man 
in a particular place, issuing particular commands, and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it's a mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. He says this, the stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this man who lived for 33 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. And he says this, the incarnation is a violation of the bill of human rights written by Adam and Eve in the garden. And then he asks this question, who does Jesus think he is? And the answer he gives is this, God. That's who he thinks he is. And if he is, then guess what? We have to not just um, tip the cap to him, we have to bow the knee to him. We have to bow our knee. Eternal life has been manifested to us. It has been clearly displayed for us. But then secondly, eternal life not has just been manifested. Eternal life can be experienced. So eternal life can be experienced. In verses 2 and 3, John says, We have seen it. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So most people understand the important things in life are not, not things at all. I think most of us in this room would say the most important things in life are not things. The most important things in life are the relationships that we have. God has put a desire for relationships in every one of us, a desire that he intended first to be met in relationship with himself, but also to be met in relationships that we can have with other people. But let me say this. It is not possible to have a true relationship with God apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you cannot have a true relationship with God apart from a relationship with Christ. So the message of 1 John is that God has spoken. God has taken the initiative of extending life to us, but hear this, but only by his terms. So Jesus, through God, has extended eternal life to us, but only through God's terms, not ever our own. And those terms are we have to believe in the Son. The church or even pastors like myself are not responsible for the narrow or exclusive claims of the gospel. God is. So when we say there's only one way, there's only one way to eternal life, that's not something that I am saying on my own. That's not something that this church is saying we have come up with that. No, we are saying Jesus said that. And we believe that. There is no other life except for life in Christ. And think about this. Christian fellowship then that we have together is 
not possible other than on the basis of belief in Christ. So it doesn't matter what you do. If you get together with a group of people and you just talk about yourselves and what you think the Bible means, um, the, there could be a problem with that and the fact that you might not have true Christian fellowship. We have to get together and say, listen, it doesn't, who cares what I think the Bible means? It doesn't matter. I could care less what you think the Bible means. I could care. I don't care what you think it means. I don't even care what I think it means. All I care about is what God says it means and what the Holy Spirit meant when he declared it to men because what the Holy Spirit meant then, he means now. Understand that. What the Holy Spirit meant then, he means, that's interpretation. Now, I'm not saying that we can't apply the Bible differently. Because we can. The Bible can be applied in different situations of our lives. The meaning stays the same, but yet there are times where I read a verse and it's able to apply in this part of my life and other times in, part, in a different way in this part of my life. So the Word of God is beautiful in that way, but we have to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is Christ. Fellowship with each other is only possible if we have fellowship with the Father and or through the Son. Christian community is only possible when we understand that there has to be a consensus about who Christ is. The fellowship that we're talking about here, of being able to experience something, is not just a group of people joined together because we say we believe in a common cause. This is not why we're here. If you're here to believe in a common cause, go join a political party and stump for them. That is not what we're about. That is not what, it's not just about a common cause. We are here because we have, we have experienced something greater, a common experience. And the fact that we have experienced the Son of God. I know some of you, when I talk about politics, you're going to get upset with me, but I don't care. I could care less because politics is not ultimate. The gospel is ultimate. And I don't care. You, guess what? You can go stump for whoever the Democrats come up with or whoever the Republicans Trump comes up with, and not a one of them can save anyone in your family or anyone in your life. So let's understand that the ultimate thing that's going to bring us together as a group is what we believe about Jesus Christ and who he is to us. Let me calm down for a second. Listen. Listen, this life can be experienced. And it can be experienced that we have with him and we have with other people. During World War II, the enemy conducted experiments to find the most effective type of punishment for eliciting information from prisoners. And here's what they found out. They found out that solitary confinement was the most effective way. Because after a few days of solitary confinement, they found out that most men would tell all. And that is why we need fellowship with each other. Because without it, we are too easily, we too easily become prey for temptation and we abandon our values. We need to share our lives with each other. And let me just say this. We don't just do that by sitting in a room on Sunday. We have to, brothers and sisters, you have to have a group of people in your lives that share your life with you. That you can call, guess what? You don't get to just talk to them on Sunday. You can call them on Tuesday. You can call them on Thursday. When something is in your life, you can call them Friday night. And they'll answer because they're living life with you. We need that together. Eternal life can be experienced not just with God, but with each other. And that leads us to this third truth, which is this. Eternal life then must be enjoyed. Eternal life must be enjoyed. John says this in verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
He doesn't just say my joy. He doesn't say your joy. He says our joy. Joy is the product of our fellowship with God. But hear this. When there is no joy, it means there is no fellowship. So joy is a product of our fellowship with God. But when you don't have joy, it means that you don't have fellowship. In one sense, John is saying that first comes the tremendous joy of knowing God. But we can also come to know God more through our fellowship with each other. There's something amazing that takes place that our joy and fellowship is actually multiplied when we understand or come in contact with the joy that other people have for the same thing. It's what what John is saying here. Listen, your joy can be multiplied if you place yourself within a community who believes like you because their joy then doubles your joy. And it's something that takes place in a beautiful... I'm not getting any amens whatsoever because I don't know if you understand this. I don't understand if you know that God made us for relationships. And some of you might say, well, I have relationships. I have my wife and my family. Brothers and sisters, as as noble as that task might be, as noble as that declaration might be, men, you need other men in your life will look at you and will say, you're wrong. Women, you need other women in your life that will look at you and in love correct you. We need accountability in our lives. And here's what I know. And I don't know a whole lot. I've only been married for 20 years, so I can't even compare to to some of you in this room. But I do know this. Oftentimes when my wife tries to correct me, she knows. But I don't always receive it like I should. I I don't. But yet when a man, when when a brother will come to me and say that same thing, I receive it a little bit more. I don't know why. It's just the way God meant for us to have that kind of accountability. Again, I wasn't planning on saying these things, but here's what we have to understand. Think about the the first century church. There was so much difficulty in their life. Persecution, loneliness, loss, martyrdom, which should have depressed and deflated the first century church. But instead, we read that they were filled with joy. Look at John 15, 11. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let me ask you a question. Do you know when Jesus said that? He said that to his disciples the night before he was crucified. The night before he was crucified, he looked at them and said, I want you guys to have joy. Are you kidding me? Jesus, you're about to die. And you're talking about our joy? And Jesus says, Absolutely. Absolutely, I'm talking about your joy in that moment. As a third century, a man was anticipating his death. He penned these last words to a friend. Listen to this. He says, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I've discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are Christians, and I am one of them. Oh, that we would understand that beauty, that we have found a joy a thousand times better than the pleasures of this sinful world. And let me just say this today. It seems to me, and I'm speaking on my own opinion here, so take that for whatever it is, but it seems to me, that the most unhappy people in this world are not unsaved people. It seems to me that the most unhappy people in this world are Christians who are disobedient to Christ. 
And here's why, here's why I say this. When we continue to sin, we are inviting the punishment of God over our lives. Because we as Christians, because we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God's will through that Spirit and through His Word, when we are not obeying Christ, we are more wretched in our backslidden state than those who have not accepted our Savior. Why? Because we know Him. And yet we're still choosing to act like we don't. And we become miserable in that way. Every Christian who has lived for a time with unconfessed sins, no, you know what I'm talking about because you've been there and I've been there. And that's why we need to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51. God, restore to us the joy of your salvation. God, forgive any of us in this room today who doesn't have joy in what he has done for us. May God forgive us for that. If you're in here and you don't have joy, then you aren't walking as Christ has um, called you to walk. Christ was saying to his disciples the night before the cross, is what I'm doing is going to give you joy. It's not going to take joy away from you. Life, eternal life, must be enjoyed. Let me say that again. Brothers and sisters, it's okay to smile in church. It's okay to laugh in church. It's okay to enjoy this. It's okay to enjoy this. Some of you, you come in here and you're like... I just have to be here. No, we get to be here. We get to do this. We get to worship the Lord together. This should something that that should make uh, bring joy in our hearts. Eternal life must be enjoyed. And then lastly, eternal life, hear this, will be proclaimed. Eternal life will be proclaimed. In fact, um, Brother Frank prayed this this morning during our prayer time about us speaking And sharing our faith with someone. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. It says, We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So one of John's greatest desires was was to proclaim what he had seen, what he had heard concerning Jesus so that other people would believe. That is what he wanted. But then he also wanted to proclaim it so that Christians would continue to believe. Although none of us are eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, none of us are eyewitnesses to his ministry as John was, we can also, as as Peter described in in 1 Peter 1.8, Peter says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's our testimony. We haven't seen him, but we love him. We haven't seen him, but yet we believe in him. And in believing in him, we see him. We can have that same fullness of joy when Jesus becomes our Savior, gives us a passion for life. And then like John, we have a testimony to share with those who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And we have a testimony to share with those who do. Our testimony isn't just for unbelievers, although it it better get to unbelievers. Our testimony is also for believers. We need to be encouraged. I don't know if you have caught the news here. God is doing something. God is up to something, and we need to share what God is doing. And so what we can do is we can follow John's pattern of telling others what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have felt concerning Christ. Think about this. What have you heard? What have you heard? 
If you are a Christian, you have heard and you have received a message called the gospel. That's the message of salvation. John, or excuse me, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Do you know the gospel? Let me tell you the beautiful thing here. According to Romans 1.16, the gospel doesn't bring us shame. The gospel takes away our shame. Therefore, when we share the gospel, we're not adding shame to people. We're telling it so it will take away their shame. Do we know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? What have you heard? And then secondly, what have you seen? What have you seen? Although we can't observe Jesus with our physical eyes, if we have known him for any length of time, we have seen how he's worked in our lives. We, we know how he's worked. We've seen him work. Here's the statement to people. This is how he has worked in me. This is what he has done in my life. What have you seen? And then what have you felt? Now, the disciples, of course, they were able to touch Jesus. And we know that we aren't able to do that. But let me tell you how this works. Instead of us touching Jesus, he touches us. Instead of us touching him, he touches us. Us. How has he touched you? What impact has he made on your life? Think about people in your life. Not just general people. I'm talking about people or even one specific person in your sphere of influence who does not know Jesus. Think about one person that doesn't know him. And let me encourage you today. Pray for that person. Pray for that person. Let me ask you a question. If God answered all of your prayers that you prayed last week, how many people would be in heaven because of it? And the answer for most of us is not a one. Now, we'd have awesome things and we'd have no problems in our lives and everything would be great in our lives, but no one around us would be in heaven. And here's what I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that most of us who sit in these, in these pews, we don't really believe in hell. We don't. Because if we really believed in hell, then guess what? We'd be telling people about eternal life. If we really believed that there was a hell, then we would be sharing that with family members who don't know him. We'd be doing that if we really believed it. So listen, pray. Think about just one, just one person. Maybe there's more, but pray for that one person and then pray this. God, give me an opportunity or another opportunity to point them to you. Give me an opportunity or another opportunity to point them to you, to tell them what I know about you, what you've done in my life. They might try to argue with many things, but they can't argue with the fact that this is who you are and this is what you've done for me. Oh, that we would share that. Isn't that what we want? We want to share the gospel with people so they come to know what we know and experience what we experience. Eternal life has come. Eternal life has come for us. The question is, where will we go for him? Where will we go for him? Let me end in this way this morning. What, what have you experienced? What have you experienced this morning? Have you experienced life in him? Are you here today? And may, maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord. If that is you, the Bible gives a day for salvation. And it's called today. It's not tomorrow, it's not next week, it's not next month. The Bible says today is a day of salvation. If the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you right now, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next week. Do it today. 
How have you experienced Christ? Maybe you're doing that right now and experience the Holy Spirit telling you you need him. Others of you, we've been saved a long time. But how are you experiencing him right now? I heard someone say one time, if your testimony is more than 24 hours old, get a new one. Meaning this, if you were asked to give your testimony, the first thing and the last thing you say was, I was saved 45 years ago, my life's been good, get a new one. Get a new one. I'm proud and I'm, I'm grateful that you were saved 45 years ago, but how has that impacted your life right now? What's God doing in your life right now? Oh, that we would be able to declare that. What have you experienced? And then here's another question. What are you enjoying? What are you enjoying? Are you enjoying life in him? Are you enjoying fellowship with other brothers and sisters? And if you are enjoying it, then tell your face. Just, just saying. Just, just saying. And then, <laughs> I don't even apologize for that. Not, not even. But listen, are we enjoying that? And then will we proclaim that? Will we proclaim what God has done for us? Will we tell others? Will we tell others? The word of God is not meant to stop with us. It's meant to spread through us. May we spread it. May we share it with others. Not because we're better than them. I'll never forget what um, Pastor Michael taught one, one, Sunday, or one Wednesday night about um, evangelism. We're not better than people, but we will be better off. Amen. We're not better than them, but we will be better off. And we want to share that message with them. If you can go ahead and stand this morning. As you can see, whenever we choose to walk verse by verse through a book, there's going to be times where it's not going to hit us the way we wish it would hit us. Meaning the whole purpose of the Bible is not to make us feel better about ourselves. The whole purpose of this book is to make us like God. And oh, that we would, by His Spirit, follow that and obey that in every way. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you now. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the power of it. I thank you, Lord, for what it has the power to do in, in every life in this room. Lord, I pray right now for any that's in this room or who will be in this room who has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, who has never turned from their sin and who has never turned to Jesus and bowed the knee to him, confessing him as not just the Savior of their lives, but the Lord of their life. They've never done it. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. But I also, Lord, pray in this room for believers. Lord, how are we experiencing you? Are we experiencing you right now? God, I pray that you would deliver us from an experience that took place 10 years ago that we're still living on today. God, help us, Lord, to experience you right now. And the way that we begin that is by knowing what you're telling us to do and doing it. Help us to obey you, God. And help us to enjoy you. Lord, help us to enjoy you. Give us, restore to us the joy of your salvation. Restore to us the joy. And help us to walk in that joy with you and with others. And then help us, God, give us someone. Give us someone this week to point to you. Not just with our actions, but being witnesses with our words. Finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.